Paul McCartney had phoned me up because he'd been phoned by Twiggy, who had been watching Opportunity Knocks with Huey Green. And Twiggy had called Paul and said, you must turn on your television, this girl is remarkable. Paul then said, we have to sign this girl. So Derek and myself were detailed to go to Wales and sign Mary Hopkin, which we did. When Paul signed Mary Hopkin, he already knew he wanted to produce the record. I knew the song he wanted to make the first single. So he, he had a plan in mind the, the day we signed it. He'd been to a nightclub and heard this duo, Gene and Francesca, sing this song, Those Were The Days, and uh, had filed it away in his, in his music genius memory. Turned out that the melody was some traditional Russian thing, but they'd written the words. And now, Mary Hopkin for Coca-Cola. Welcome to this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, let's see. We've made it through All Things Must Pass. We, we did. All Things Passed. W- one thing that made us think of was uh, the singles on Apple Records. That's the way. The That's the way God to be. A fair bit of writing and thought has been given to the albums, but not a whole lot has been given to the singles. Right. And a big part of how Apple was accepted by the record buying public. I mean, that was really most of what people saw were those 45s with Apple on it in the the really cool black sleeves or white sleeves. If you're from Canada, it was at a time when the market still accommodated both the 45s and the LPs. Right. For a younger audience, you know, it's still 45s. That's what you could afford. But the older audience definitely was changing the way albums were bought. We like to talk about how the Beatles changed the market to an LP market, but they were also solidly standing with a foot in the the singles market. Absolutely. You know, they, they still were recording standalone singles with the first Apple album, which was the White Album. They still had Hey Jude as a standalone single wasn't on the album. Yeah, and that's something that people don't necessarily think about, although now that Hey Jude is actually on the White Album box, <laughs> for years people would ask the question, well, what album is Hey Jude on? Well, it's, it's on this past masters thing that you have to understand why it exists. Yes. You know, there's that whole little game about if uh, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane really belonged on Sgt. Pepper, where would you put them? 
And that's the interesting thing. So where would you put Hey Jude on the White Album? Well, a lot of people would replace Revolution Number no. 9 with Hey Jude. <laughs> <laughs> They're close enough to the same length. One's an easily digestible song and the other isn't. So it's just basically the catchy chorus. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, Apple as an entity, we did, we did a show on that. We've already done a show on that. You and I. <laughs> right. For those who want to go back and, and listen to it. But we actually didn't cover the record side of things in that much depth. We spent most of the show talking about the school and the island and the various other bits and pieces surrounding Apple. Yeah, the projects of Apple as opposed to the label necessarily. Even Beatles aside, the label is the longest lasting thing that comes out of that whole enterprise. When the history of music of the last century is written, Apple will feature in there quite prominently. Still around today, churning things out. You know, it has certainly changed over the years from a label putting out new, fresh product to a label that basically repackages, reissues. But it's still Apple. While not this go-around, the last go-around of Apple, they even put out the box which had a healthy selection of the Apple LPs. The CD version of the Apple crate. Right. So Apple came out to the world with a package that they called Our First Four. They had a big promotional production. They put the four singles together with bios of, of the artists in a box. They were doing much the same thing that they do today with CD boxes. They produced an expensive version and a cheap version. Yes, and people were probably complaining back then. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. The only folks who got the cheap version were DJs and such. Yeah. So even among average humans, it was a fairly exclusive item. Right. They took it to Buckingham Palace, and they took it to 10 Downing Street, and you know, presented to the officials of the British government. This is the expensive version, the the plastic box-coated version. Right. Richard Delano tells a great story about that in his book, you know, taking it up to Buckingham Palace because he had big hair (laughs) and uh, was definitely a hippie and was very amused by the whole look of the thing. The royal family apparently got multiple copies. The queen got one, the queen mother got one, Princess Margaret got one. I wonder if Prince Charles got one, but I, I... I don't see that they actually did deliver one to Charles. That's terrible, though. He was probably more of the age of their audience. As we have since learned in the ensuing years, he was not a big fan. You remember at the Prince's Trust when uh, he and Diana were sitting there. She was bopping along, and he was just sort of sitting there prim and proper. (laughs) Right. Oh, dear. How much longer will this song be continuing? I I must get home to mother. (laughs) I've never heard this. four box contained copies of each of the singles enclosed in a nice black press folder and there was a press release for each of the four artists one was hey jude which did not have an apple serial number on it in fact none of the beatles singles would have an apple serial number right they were still contracted to emi and capital uh, so the putting of the apple label on their album was strictly a optical 
thing. They weren't contracted to Apple. Who are you signing? Oh. Uh, so the, the second single was uh, Mary Hopkins, Those Were the Days, Apple II. Which was huge. On August 30th, Apple releases Those Were the Days by Mary Hopkins. The record is beautifully produced by Paul McCartney using bazookis, banjos, clarinets, and a fine string arrangement. Its lyrical folk melody takes the world and sells four million copies in three months. McCartney picked a great song and produced it up. And he, he really kind of fulfilled the ideals of what they intended for the label. Launched new artists. The third single was uh, Jackie Lomax's Sour Milk Sea, Apple Three, which we've mentioned several times on here. Right. Written by George, produced by George, uh, with tons of friends including some Beatles. And then the fourth was Apple IV. And so on August 11th, the Beatles launched National Apple Week with the release of the Black Dyke Mills Band, conducted by Paul. The single Thingamabob is the theme tune Paul had written for an English TV comedy series starring Stanley Holloway. Right. A quirky little tune, instrumental, written by... Apparently, Lennon and McCarthy. <laughs> you know, very much a Paul thing. Although I think John did contribute. It's at least uh, thought that it's Paul's, or mainly Paul's, and he recorded it and produced it. So he it was part of two of the four singles. Because I want to read a little bit of the press releases. They're, they're kind of priceless. All right. The first of the press releases printed on a, a very nice sort of Kelly Green paper, uh, and it's headed John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Although the first line is, the Beatles, as of now, in short, are in good health, of sound heart, and willing spirit. Really? Why do you need to tell us this? They, they were young men, well less than 30, and it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> That's the way Derek wrote. Derek Taylor, Beatles publicist. I had a couple of drinks when we were downstairs, so you'll have to excuse me, folks. Sorry. Ready to go. So it continues. At the moment, they are deeply involved in the twin responsibilities of recording the album's successor to the greatly respected Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and of administering the Happy Apple Complex of Companies in London. Well, we've already talked about that complex of companies. Right. All the people they brought. They are confident and cheerful, uh, and the human condition will be thrilled by the coming results of their willing and enduring Beatle bondage. Again, uh... That doesn't sound so good in the 2020s. <laughs> Willing and enduring Beatle bondage. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know how much Derek Taylor you've read, but he is uh, flowery and verbose. <laughs> and, you know, he, he just kind of writes that way. It's a, some of it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and then it ends with, stimulated by the blossoming of Apple, they will give all of us new wonders to soothe our pain. The end for now, but there is no end. Now, Now that sounds like Derek Taylor. Right. I, I'm reminded of his interview after the McCartney press release. That as long as the four of them are alive, then, then there still is a Beatle. There's, there's no such thing as an ex-Beatle or a former Beatle or a retired Beatle because um, the Beatles are something other than a pop group and they've broken up. But the Beatles are not a pop group. They're an abstraction, a sort of a repository for many... There's many things, so it's, it's sort of like a pigeonhole in the sky that you can put something in and get an answer, and a sort of Beatles response to a situation. Do you understand what I mean? And I think that they ful fulfill a need in in, uh, in in the media for uh, something that's there, that's cheerful and, and human and rich, and somehow 
invulnerable. So the Beatles, if the Beatles is alive as an idea, then I think all four Beatles will respond to that idea at some time or other and become Beatles again. <laughs> well, they, Derek kind of turned them into to living gods. <laughs> you know, just like he turned Brian Wilson into a genius. I mean, he, he's the man uh, kind of responsible for that whole Brian is a genius thing. So he, he wrote that way, and, and sometimes it's way over the top. <laughs> and then you get the black and white press photo from Mad Day Out, and, and you get a, the single enclosed in a, a clear plastic sleeve. The second press release is for Mary Hopkin. As with the other one, Mary Hopkin in brief, she was born with real red cheeks and wavy blonde hair 18 years ago in, uh, well, let's let's try and, I'm, I'm not going to try and pronounce this. <laughs> You're going to do Welsh? P-O-N-T-A-R-D-A-W-E. A town in Wales. Well, you pronounce it like it's spelled. Wanted Dowie in the Swansea Valley. <laughs> I don't know Welsh. How Wales and the rest of England can sit together so comfortably when their languages are just so different is beyond me. Yeah, well, you know, historically, it hasn't always been all that comfortable. Her father, who was a housing officer with the Rural Council, was understandably proud when she was chosen from over 200 young performers to appear on Opportunity Knox. She appeared on the show for eight weeks. Uh, some of those are on YouTube, by the way. Yes. It was really pretty cool to, to actually tune in and see what Paul McCartney might have seen. I think the, the story is that uh, Twiggy actually saw her first and contacted Paul. So, I don't know, I guess it was a show that was every week. Yeah, I would guess that the closest analog would be like American Idol. Yes. Then it ends with her first single, Those Were the Days, arranged by Mr. McCartney, will be released at the end of August and is going to be a number one. He predicted it and he was right. It was huge. You know, having lived through that period, that song was everywhere. You lied up my life before you lied up my life. <laughs> There's a, a perfect analogy. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just this all-pervasive song. And it didn't sound like anything else. It's like you know, an old Balkan melody with harmonicas and accordions and a bank of strings and a big choir. And, well, know. it just shows you how perfectly Paul knew the market. You know, he knew what would sell. He apparently heard this song as early as like 1963 out in the clubs. Right, and it kept it just in the back of his mind. Эх, выходит, пели мы за даром Понапрасну ночь за ночью жгли Если мы покончили со старым Так и ночи и отошли He tried to get a couple other people to record it, and, and it never happened. 
everyone know, oh, Paul, you're daft. That's that's never going to sell. <laughs> then when Twiggy turned him on to Mary Hopkins, like, there's a girl who can do it justice. The unfortunate aspect of it was it was McCartney's vision. That never was Mary Hopkins' vision of herself. I don't think she had any real objection to those were the days. It's kind of the things that Paul would turn her to. Well, I know she has talked about the first album and some of her dissatisfaction with some of the songs, the styles. that Twee would be the word. <laughs> exactly. But again, I think that's more sort of the later stuff, Inchworm and children's songs that Paul would pop up for her. Well, I think she was an 18-year-old girl who Paul McCartney approached and said, hey, well, let's do this. I mean, what, what did Paul, what was the first thing that, uh, that Paul, did he phone you up or phone your agent? Or, uh... Yeah, well, I, I got a telegram and uh, to ring Apple Records, and I found I was talking to Paul, so uh, <laughs> well, it was very exciting shattered. at the time. I finally got over it after eight years, <laughs> so... <laughs> right, it must have been at the time, it must have been a, a sort of emotional... Uh, Oh, uh, yes, it was very exciting, yeah, because I, I was a Beatles fan, you know, still am. <laughs> How could you even predict that you would do this song and it would be the phenomenon that it was? And, of course, you had the, uh, the unique, I suppose, um, record of actually toppling the Beatles, stopping the Beatles from getting to number one because Hey Jude was around at the same time as those were the days. Yeah, well, I, I didn't really stop them. We, we both got there, but, you know. Yeah, well, the Beatles dropped out a lot quicker than you did with Hey Jude. You stayed there for six weeks and they kind of got in at number two, Mm. uh, and then, or number one, and then then dropped out very quickly, whereas those of the days sort of stuck around for a bit. (laughs) They must have been pretty cheesed off about that, actually. I don't know. No, well, you you were part of the the brigade, weren't you? The Apple Apple family. And so I think in later years, perhaps, she felt like it wasn't really her. This was Paul's record. I was pretty naive about everything and rather timid about, you know, putting forward my opinions. So more or less everything I did was sort of Paul's decision. Other things she recorded later on, which are distinctly different, is more to her natural style. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some of those as we go through the singles. Her later singles flopped, to be kind. Uh, Paul and I sort of... Drifted apart because Paul was sort of initially concerned with the Beatles, which is understandable. Yeah. So he was pretty busy, <clears throat> pardon me, and um, they just had to find a new producer for me. <laughs> right. Yes, but you can listen to some of them, and, and they're good. You know, some of them I don't like as much, but you also have to tie some of this in with what was going on at the company itself. Promotion, production who's in your corner, what's Alan Klein doing. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on with those later singles. For sure. To finish off the quote from the press release, Mary Hopkins still has real red cheeks. She is a star. Here we end, but there will be more. So uh, anyway, I did a few records with Mickey, and then um, we sort of fell apart as well because I I was getting the material was getting too commercial for my liking as well. You don't like commercial records? I, I don't mind good commercial records, but I, I do mind I mean, new one's inferior pretty commercial. music. If we wanted to move to the, the second single that she put out, uh, which is Goodbye, which McCartney wrote for her, and it was really 
brilliant. It moved her more towards what she did with the acoustic guitars, and yet the arrangement of it, in a way, harkened back to Those Were the Days. I actually like Goodbye better than Those Were the Days. I do, too. I I like it a lot. It wasn't just a complete different style, but Those Were the Days was pretty bombastic, and Goodbye wasn't the same sort of thing. She would move more to a simpler style. Again, I don't know whether she necessarily made the correct decision. For her, it was certainly the right decision, but commercially, in in terms of her career, it just didn't really work out after she failed to have the support of Paul McCartney behind her. Tony Visconti was a good producer, and I like some of what he did on her later records, but they're not hit records, and they're not something I listen to with any regularity. Again, what I've read about what was going on within the company at that point, within the band, because that's what Apple was, was what the Beatles were putting into it. They had produced and worked with a lot of the beginning records. But then when they started disagreeing and management issues came up and firings occurred, it just seems like chaos. For the last two years of Apple, Paul was too busy with his own life to worry about things. Wings was his only concern at that point. He really pulled out of Apple altogether. And he was the one who had initially brought so much to it that when he pulled out, at least initially, you weren't going to get many singles out of Yoko. And that was what John was doing for the most part. He was promoting her and him. He wasn't looking for artists for the label. And in regards to the label, labels have A&R guys. Apple didn't. (laughs) Once Peter Asher left, Klein fired him and Apple Records was an adventure at the time and it, it you would think well a label should have a new guy <laughs> well but Klein didn't care about the label is what it amounts to no he didn't the label was all just more people taking his money yeah that's true I've got better ways to get around tax than to spend it on artists who aren't gonna have hit singles and make me money yeah well Klein was never involved in that aspect of the music industry he wasn't a creative in regards to music, he might have been one in financing. But the thing to look at with Alan Klein is he managed the Rolling Stones and somehow ended up with their songs up until Sticky Fingers. You know, all those are now Abco albums. And you have to wonder how that happened. And Mick warned John, but he wouldn't listen. Paul, who, who listened. That was what was going on at Apple. And so these artists were like, you're kind of on your own, <laughs> in a way, I guess. As we'll discuss next week, that's ultimately what happened to Badfinger. Right. You know, they were a group who potentially had hit singles in front of them, but Apple wasn't going to put the time or effort into both production and promotion to to get the most commercially out of Badfinger. Now, unfortunately, their subsequent label would also not treat them correctly, but that's a completely different story. Yeah, it was just a mess. And so some of the success of some things, I don't know, I mean, you can't expect everybody to have hits all the time, but a lot of the music was wrapped up in the bad running of business. The third artist in our first four was Jackie Lomax. So Jackie Lomax, uh, he was in The Undertakers, 
who who had also gone to uh, Germany in '62. Jackie's a new boy in as much as he's only really had one single release, but he's really an old boy. You know, he's been doing it since we started doing it in Liverpool. He was in a Liverpool band, and he's been through a lot of things. Right. There's, I guess, impressed enough to go, hey, he needs to be on our label. So George had a song which he supplied, Sour Milk Sea, and he supplied the production. And, and So post-Undertaker's uh, Jackie Lomax moved to America and formed his own group, the, the Jackie Lomax Alliance. I think it was in 1966 when we were doing our last tour of America that we met Jackie. He'd been living a while in New York. And it just, it was a bit, I felt a bit sad. You know, we were in our limousines and our big hotel suite, and we'd been through all that scene. And Jackie had been working, singing, since we were singing, since we first started, and yet he really hadn't got anywhere. I always thought he was pretty good. And I met him through the publishing. You know, he wanted to sell some songs. So I sort of verbally committed myself to produce a record by him. But unfortunately, you know, none of us here can manage him because we're really a record company, not a managing agency or something. Brian sort of bought them back to London. Their two mid-60s Jackie Lomax Alliance singles, they recorded an album, but it never got released. Right. Brian bought them back, and Brian basically said, I'm going to take over your career. And then Brian died. And so that was how Apple inherited Jackie Lomax. And I guess, you know, George was the one who, who really liked it the most. You know, maybe it's the guitar player thing. So you're saying that Lomax was hired or contracted into Apple? It doesn't say clearly, but I would guess that Brian was in charge of what was going on with Lomax's career. Then when Brian passed, Apple inherited that contract. It probably willingly inherited, you know, Lomax said, oh, the Beatles are actually going to form a company. Sure, I'll go along with that. Right. That's not stated in stone anywhere, but that would seem to be the most reasonable path from A to B. So that was uh, his first record, and it didn't really get the traction that other things did. So the Lomax press releases on red paper, and the final paragraph here reads, The American experience was valuable, Although other groups and solo experimentations, Jackie became a broader human being and a better rocker. That's Derek Taylor's writing for you. <laughs> yes. And this year is a new year, and it is the year of Apple. And with George Harrison as writer of the A-side and himself as author of the B-side, Jackie is in good shape with Sour Milk Sea and the Eagle Laughs at You. They are excellent, as your ears will tell you. Well, you know, I think we've discussed this song before. <laughs> Not your favorite, but... It's not. So, in my telling of the story, I would say, well, it wasn't as good a record. And so, if it failed, it failed on its own merits. Probably a bit of each. Although, you know, I still think it was the fact that the Beatles may know how to make records, but they really didn't know how to promote them. There's really just sort of no excuse for a record with all that talent on it, even if it wasn't the absolute greatest record in the world, it should have been a much bigger hit than it actually was. Well, to my ear, it's really muddy. you got talent 
playing on it, certainly. But as a record, it just doesn't sound as good as radio play records usually are. As opposed to Those Were the Days, the one thing you can absolutely say about that single is that it is very well produced. Every ounce of her voice comes through on that record. Yes. And, and there's really so much going on uh, on the record that the fact that it all works and it, it isn't a big wash is talent. Well, particularly when you compare it to Phil Spector and what he did to All Things Must Pass, as we have talked about the last <laughs> few weeks. Right. It could have very easily gone in that direction. But every piece of instrumentation on Those Were the Days is in perfect balance with every other piece. They're there. They sound clear. And that's even with having to record pieces together on the same piece of tape. You know, they were on an eight-track machine, but I'm sure that instruments were being combined before mixdown. Yes. So I, I would tend to agree. And then the last single in the box was the Black Dyke Mills Band with this Paul McCartney song, Thingamy Bob, and the B-side was Yellow Submarine. It's kind of awkward, but it's also kind of fun if you listen to it any time recently, the, their cover of Yellow Submarine. Yeah, it, it's nice, you know. Um, to get an actual sort of brass brass band take brass, on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I prefer George Martin's version on the Yellow Submarine soundtrack as a version of Yellow Submarine. But it's good. You know, it, it's fun. And the A-side is, is a cool little song that was meant to uh, be the theme song for a British TV show. <laughs> In preparing for this, reading some things, I kept coming across the phrase that it became their first single. And what was their second? They actually had a hit in 1985. We can go back to, to Derek in the Orange Press release here. When Paul McCartney wrote Think of Me, Bob, he said he wanted to get the truth of a brass band feeling about the song. How? By using a brass band. It's so simple to find the truth if you seek it. Is it not? The Black Dyke Mills Band is 113 years old. So it's 113 years old in 1968. So they, they'd been around since the 1850s. <laughs> and it is sponsored by John Foster and Son Limited of the Woolen Mills in the village of Queensbury, Yorkshire, near Bradford. A lot of letters there, but at least it's not Welsh, right? <laughs> right. Well, he, he only got that band because Sergeant Pepper's band was available. He, he finally got that brass band thing. Yeah, I like it.
it's a fun little song. Some of McCartney's uh, instrumentals get totally overlooked. Yeah, we should do a show just on Paul's instrumentals somewhere along the way here. Yeah. He's done so many interesting ones. To finish from the press release, there are 27 members in the band plus the percussion section. The resident band master is Roy Newsom, and the professional conductor is Jeffrey Brand, and the youngest member is 16 years old. And it is the best band in the land. Nobody writes like Derek Taylor. A weird song to kind of put out there as your first introduction to things. but uh, And we were never to have another Black Dyke Milks single on Apple. Yeah, that, that was their career. Well, for Apple. Well, prior to and after, they did have other recordings. Right. Well, we're only discussing Apple tonight anyway. So <laughs> Now, the story about the recording of that single is actually a Hey Jude story. <laughs> yeah. They went up there to record, and when they finished up, their journey back led them to several little adventures. Most notably, after they had a couple, they, they went into a pub, and there was a piano there, and Paul said, Anybody want to hear our new song? So the assembled crowd in the pub became the first people in the world outside of the Beatles' inner circle to hear Hey Jude. I wonder while he was playing it for them, when he got to the movement you need is on your shoulder, he (laughs) said, I'm going to change that. (laughs) But it's still a pretty amazing story. There's another similar story about Mick Jagger's birthday that year, that McCartney showed up with an acetate of Hey Jude. And in playing it, apparently offended some people because it was like Nick's birthday. <laughs> and then Paul was going, here's our new song. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure Mick has gotten used to it through the years. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first four. And while we're not going to go through all of them, we'll, we'll go through some of the other singles. Well, there, there was one other artist we wanted to talk about in this show, and that's Billy Preston. Right, who joined Apple after his sessions for Get Back. Yeah, I didn't realize that Billy Preston had had his own recording career prior to showing up on Apple. Right. He recorded an album on VJ in the early 60s. It's an all-instrumental album, but it's like, really? Wow. VJ put out albums like that. You know, he was an organ player. That's what he was known for. So some random record store owner who had a deal with VJ, would get valuable copies of Introducing, and they would get Billy Preston's new album. (laughs) Which now they sell as a set on eBay. (laughs) I would love to have one of those original shipping cartons from VJ, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You know, he made some good records at, at Apple. Billy was in Little Richard's band, and that's where the Beatles first met him, in Hamburg in 62. Then when he was in town... I think he was playing with Ray Charles when he... In between his own recording sessions, he was in the Ray Charles band. There once was a fella Who was down on fucking floor Yes, he was, yeah He didn't have no kind of rhythm He didn't have no kind of soul to wear My office put me on his case And I slacked him down right away as I did Like he's a DJ on the radio So everybody knows and that was what brought him to London. And we, and then we know the rest of that story, that George brought him in because he didn't want everybody else to be so bitchy. <laughs> and I guess it worked. <laughs> so in, in order, it was the first four, then Goodbye came out, then Get Back came out, which was the first time that we really got Billy Preston on a Beatles-related release. Right. Then Jackie Lomax's New Day, then Ballad of John Yoko, 
then that's the way God planned it. Yes. We're now in mid-69. This was... June. Yeah, just shortly after Ballad of John and Yoko and prior to the beginnings of the uh, Abbey Road sessions. Right. And it included a jam session with Eric Clapton, which we talked about a couple weeks back. Yeah. I guess right around the time was Gifty's Chance. Uh, Yeah. We're kind of holding off on the solo stuff until next week. Yeah. I was just putting it in context. Then the next single is one, one of the ones that Mary Hopkin is really kind of upset about. It's from September of 69. That's Que Sera Sera. <laughs> yeah. It had been a big, uh, what, Doris Day single here in the States. Yes, that was Doris Day. That was the version that everybody knows. And I guess Paul was kind of thinking... We can pop this up a little bit, and he did pop it up just a little bit, but that's the kind of image we want Mary to continue putting forward out in the marketplace. Doris Day, number two. And, you know, I can see why that's not where she wanted to be. Right. There's a little backstage thing here, though, because Mary didn't want to be that personally, but her dad did, and her dad was involved in her career. And so... Apple didn't feel like they could really do too much more than actually promote this image. Well, I mean, it's a little bit like Brian and Murray Wilson. Brian <laughs> wanted to do something else, and Murray said, no, you're going to go out there and, yeah. and keep singing these songs about girls and cars because that's what sells. <laughs> and I can get Michael Love to write lyrics like that. <laughs> Although... Mary's dad did not seem to be quite as controlling, but I guess it's that same thing. It's that sort of stage parent thing. Yes. He didn't want her to be, you know, sexy in any way or a good girl. Well, I was so sick and tired of of doing really rubbishy songs, which I considered rubbish. Uh, But I was determined to make a a better album, a a sort of more folk-oriented album. And uh, that's how we met Tony, because I heard of the Strokes album. And, uh, you know, it appealed to me. Then in October of 69, Billy Preston had another single, Everything's Alright, which is an okay song. It's, that's not my favorite of Billy's. But that was, as you said, September of 69. What's going on at the label and in the headquarters itself? I mean, They weren't going to be pushing it because Something and Come Together also came out right around the same time. Those two singles came out within a week or two of each other. And a fair bit of Billy's press and popularity did come from his association with the Beatles. That's the way God planned it. Worked by itself, I think. But still, he got covered because he was the Beatles' buddy. I think that's right. Rolling Stone wouldn't do a story on this single just because. Especially when there's something, the Beatles' single, which is like, oh, this is George Harrison's biggest hit ever (laughs) it's the greatest love song of the last 50 years sorry billy we don't have time for you right now right i think promotion here was tough and what was going on in apple i think Derek at that point was not feeling his best this was when paul was really starting to drift away from apple and apple artists yes one of the things that that occurred, John said that he was getting a divorce and leaving the band, and all went on in, in that meeting. 
But the thing that happened immediately after that was Cold Turkey coming out, credited only to John Lennon. I mean, that was virtually on the heels of it. And I think Paul's exit was pretty fast. The next single uh, that came out was uh, Mary Hopkins' Tema Harbor, which still has traces of McCartney, but you could tell that this was really sort of her first attempt at kind of moving away from this image and from the style of song writing that had been associated with her at that point. Let's go on anyway to, to Mickey Mouse. It was really the last hit from Mary Hopkin other than one that, that we'll get to in a bit here, which had another reason why it, it became known and was uh, kind of a hit. It got to number six in the charts. Yeah. Other than these Beatles singles that we're going to list the rest of the way down, most of the rest of these, regardless of quality, didn't get that much of a chance. No. I was an avid reader of musical magazines back then, and you might see an ad. There's no real radio play, and so it all died. Didn't have a chance. Then in February of 70 was How the Web Was Woven by Jackie Lomax, Apple 23. Now, the B-side had some McCartney involvement, Thumb and a Ride. Right. And I like the B-side better than the A-side. <laughs> I just do. Jackie Lomax just didn't have the greatest of voices. He could sing, but, I mean, you know, George had a better voice. I'm not a big fan of Jackie's voice either. But the Thumb and a Ride is a nice little tune. That has some McCartney involvement. Right. Then comes Let It Be and, and You Know My Name. And of course, you know, that that was a hit, obviously. Then again, at roughly the same time, you're talking about two weeks after the release of Let It Be, uh, Mary Hopkin released Knock Knock Who's There, which is neither a song that I like all that much or a, a very well-produced record. Was that the one that was in the Eurovision? Yes. Knock, knock. That whole contest has always been. I have liked very much that came out of that. And so that that would become her final real hit single. That reached all the way to number two. But, you know, like I say, it's not a great song, but anything that gets put up as the British representative in Eurovision is going to be a hit single in Britain. In Britain, yeah. Now, I mean, it did nothing here. Right. But, you know, our charts were changing at that time, too. So. Then Long and Winding Road and For You Blue. Then Apple 29 was uh, Billy Preston's version of My Sweet Lord, which I like. Uh, that deserved a little bit better than what it got. I never recall hearing it on the radio at that time. 
he had troubles on the pop chart. Billy Preston's My Sweet Lord peaked at number 90 on the Billboard chart. So it broke the Hot 100, and that's <laughs> that's about all you can really say. Which is a bitch when, if all you listen to is Top 40 Radio. <laughs> if, you, if you peak at 90, probably not really being heard much. The last three singles we're going to be talking about this week are Mary Hopkins singles from 1970 and 1971 think about your children let my name be sorrow and water paper and clay right i don't have much to say about any of them actually the thing i remember most was the flip side to water paper clay was something called jefferson which i like That stood out to me. But in spite of everything, Apple continued to produce Mary Hopkins singles. Well, 13 of them. I mean, yeah. for whatever reason, the label f- supported her and felt that she was the most likely to have a success after the Beatles. And, you know, yeah, maybe it's just because Goodbye and Those Were the Days hit so big. Yeah. Paul was just kind of pulling out of his involvement with the creative side of Apple. Then she was kind of on her own in that corporate world. It would be interesting to read a little bit more about how she negotiated with her father. She no longer gives interviews, by the way. She's still alive, but she no longer gives interviews. Her daughter has become her representative to the media. And I don't know why. I guess she just doesn't want to be a public figure, but she's putting out whatever of her old recordings that she can and she re-recorded both those were the days and goodbye for uh, hits of the 60s so you'll find secondary not quite knockoff because she is singing the lead but right other versions of those songs of, of out there on the internet and it's like well this doesn't sound quite right yeah well you know the royalties and the rights to Apple got really messed up for a while. And, uh, you know, there are people who weren't paid and had trouble getting royalties. James Taylor did the same thing. He re-recorded two of his Apple songs for his greatest hits. Well, it's much along the the lines of what is going on now with Taylor Swift and her former management. It's like, (laughs) well, you want want to own the masters? Fine, I'll just re-record them. Right. Taylor's version. Now, one of the weird covers of Those Were the Days, there's a cover which was released and is purported to be Cynthia Lennon. Wow. I listened to it, and it's like, that doesn't sound like Cynthia. Could Cynthia sing? It's not a great version. It sounds like an amateur who can sing in tune singing the song, but it doesn't sound like Cynthia to me. I can't say that I've heard it. So, you know, when we mentioned it, I was thinking... It was probably more of a talking thing. William Shatner version.
A, why did this ever get recorded? And B, it's like, okay. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a weird choice of song. <laughs> if you want to sing a song and put your photos of John Lennon and your artwork of John Lennon behind it, I guess that's as good and appropriate a song as any. <laughs> yeah, well. It meant money for somebody. <laughs> I will not tell you to go and seek it out, but it's probably worth uh, listening to once. <laughs> kind of like Freddie Lennon's single. Right. Having heard it once, that's really all you need. Although Freddie sounds just the tiniest bit like John. <laughs> it's my life. My love, uh, my home, yeah. But yeah. there is a familial resemblance in voice, let's put it that way. Cynthia is not fortunate enough to have inherited any of that being married to him. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen often. Well, you never know. <laughs> I guess maybe I'll seek that out. I don't know. I'll go ahead and put up a link to it uh, just because, well, it's almost relevant. <laughs> Indeed. These were the larger artists, although we did leave off Badfinger and we left off James Taylor, so th those artists will come next week. And then the end of Apple, singles-wise, would the last two years would really be all Solo and Yoko, Beatles singles. Right. In the early days, it was hard to find a single for her. When did they really start putting them out, along with Yoko Ono, Plastic Ono Band, and then with Fly? Right. That was kind of a more commercial attempt. What do you think about Brute Force and the King of Fa? <laughs> well, it's a kind of a schoolboy joke. It has always made me chuckle. And, and the fact that it was kind of championed by George. As the story goes, left the Beatles, ate lunch, worked on King of Fa. <laughs> right. Wrote Wawa. I mean, yeah. it's a novelty record, and we have to remember that around that same period of time, Chuck Berry... His last hit. Yeah. My <laughs> diggly. <laughs> Brute Force is not a great artist. But, but then again, Apple's had this tendency to bring in people who couldn't sing and could barely play. <laughs> <laughs> not referring to Yoko, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> and some of our friends on the internet will, will not appreciate me for this, but... He's not the most uh, artistic of artists. Yeah. Peel would have been on Zapple had it continued. You have to be really pretty high to think that Pope Smokes Dope is a great record. There's a nice guy singing the smoke Pope of the Pope Smokes Dope and all the songs in Washington Square. It was beautiful, you know what I mean? The Pope Smokes Dope! The Dope Smokes Pope! For some amount of time, John had this idea that he would just churn out records like broadsheets and you know, write about the things of the day. And it didn't last long, but you know, I always saw Peel as being part of that thing. That does sort of tie us up into the business of Apple singles because how did these things came out? They came out as singles. And Apple was always kind of schizophrenic. I mean, even you look at the first four. You, okay, here here's three that are potentially radio-friendly singles, and then there's the Black Dyke Mills band. I mean, John Tavner was never going to be a hit. Nor was the Modern Jazz Quartet, as far as being a commercial hit. I think maybe the 
Black Dyke Mills Band was more of something that would be played on a different programming on the BBC. You think that you know that's more of Paul's sort of let's do something that the name Apple as an entity will get out to to the grannies. Good choice of words. Yes, the grannies. <laughs> that's exactly how John would have phrased it. <laughs> right. They'll play Maxwell Silver Hammer, and then they'll play Thingamy Bob. <laughs> that's our that's our twofer from from Paul McCartney this <laughs> week here on the Light Show on BBC. It's six p.m. We're going off the air. <laughs> I think that even when they were interested, they really didn't know what the record label Apple was really supposed to be. And I mean, to a certain extent, it always was. It's us and our friends. We want to have some product which sells, but everything else, eh, we're we're spending the money on them because we'd be paying it in taxes anyway. Yeah, and I think during one press outing. They were talking about Apple being a place where you want to do this? Well, here's $100,000. Go do it. That was the kind of the attitude. You wouldn't have to go on your knees. And I think they did that themselves with Apple. Your project's going to be Yoko Fine. Go do it. Paul, you're going to do this? Go do it. Because that was the vibe of the day. Do your happiness. So there wasn't a plan. There were four plans. (laughs) Go record the granny music so when you come back to the Beatles, we don't have to play <laughs> Obla D a hundred times. <laughs> and yet they did, so... That's kind of what John says in the now infamous uh, August meeting, you know, it, it's a fine song, Paul, but it's not a Beatles song. Go give it to Mary Hopkin or something. Right. That's a valid point. John had this view of what the group was, and that wasn't it. And Paul's attitude, I think, was, it is it because we do it. It is Beatle music. For sure. Paul would say that there always was an aspect of that to the output of the band. That's fair, too, because it was. And so if you look at it in that way, Apple, particularly the singles output of Apple, was just kind of an extension of that. (laughs) Even if they're not together as an entity, they're still going out and sort of, if not quite following their bliss, following their whims is a better way of putting it, I might say. Yeah. All right. Next week, we're going to basically talk about all the remainder of the weird acts on Apple. And there are a bunch of them. There are. Uh, And then we will also be talking about the James Taylor singles, the Badfinger singles, and uh, the Solo Beatles singles. Yes. All right. Great. We'll be back with that next week. We will see you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Tell us a little bit about Apple Records in those days. Oh, Apple Records was fun. It was like a home, you know, uh, because you had the freedom to do whatever you wanted. In fact, the first uh, time I got a chance to sing on an album was on Apple. And the first time I got a chance to co-produce my records, and that was with George. We did three albums together. I think the most important thing about the Beatles was 
the the separate personalities that made one one whole, you know, because I wouldn't, if Paul was to run Apple, it'd start going in the direction I didn't really want it to go. And if John was running Apple, it'd be the same. And me, yeah. if I was left to run it, it'd probably, you'd end up with, you know, full of Indians <laughs> and sitars and Jay Guru Dev. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Yeah.